This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Anomaly. Uh, he is the academic director of a new philosophy, politics, and economics program at La Universidad de las Americas in Ecuador. And he has taught in various programs uh, around the U.S., including at the University of Pennsylvania, at Duke, at the University of Arizona, and at the University of North Carolina. He is also the co-host of the Idea Sleep Furiously podcast and the author of the book, Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan, so it's great to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. It's always it's always nice to to um, to see. Us. The thing is, I've, this has been very much a Twitter centric uh, show, unfortunately. And uh, one of my a member of my my audience on on Substack mentioned your name, and I was like, oh, why don't why don't I know about this person? You know, you're not someone who's like you know like Richard Tanani or someone who's just constantly you know taking down people on visibly on Twitter so that I can, you know, um, start getting interested and in trying to get you on the podcast. But I'm very happy he did mention your work. And uh, you are um, very much um, exploring <laughs> uncharted waters for a lot of uh, a lot of us because, I mean, the, you know, the, why one of uh, the members of my audience wanted to, to get you on the show is uh, I just had um, JF Gary P on the show. And he has, um, an, you know, a theory that's essentially kind of the precautionary principle related to any sort of genetic intervention, be it embryo selection, be it CRISPR, mostly mostly CRISPR. Essentially, his idea is that embryo selection will lead to CRISPR, and any you know we don't want to be tinkering with that because we're essentially going to be decoupling um, the the way humans are made from the from sexual selection, which is the way humans used to be made or are made currently, uh, and plugging it into something that is, you know, not not clear um, and not necessarily guided by evolutionary principles, but by the whims of whatever person or AI is in in charge at the at that time. So, um, I mean, this is yeah, just a little bit of preamble and why why this is interesting. You have a slightly different. Um, perception of this, and you've written obviously extensively on this in your book and, and elsewhere. So, um, I mean, why is there a little bit? Why why should we nuance this position a little bit? Because his position is okay. This should be you know completely outlawed. Stop it! <laughs> Don't go there. Uh, you shall not pass. So, um, why should we um, soften our position on this? Okay, good question. Yeah, there's a lot in there, so I'll address. I'll address a bunch of different parts of that CRISPR sexual selection and legal sanctions against this. Forgive me, but my voice is going out here. I was at, I'm in Austin, Texas. I was at a party at Michael Malice's house and um, I, I didn't know him before. I was with Diana and Jeffrey and, and they're like, Hey, you want to go to Malice's house? I was like, cool. And right when I got there, the first person I tried to shake hands with, I noticed his face is kind of crinkling up and then and this massive sneeze right in my face. And I've been sick for, for the last week. So um, yeah, finally getting my voice back. But anyway, yeah, I, I listened to that episode, at least the first half of it. Um, 
I think some of the fears are legitimate. I think a lot of them are not, are, are, are actually completely misguided. So before we get ahead of ourselves, I guess, quick reminder, um, you know, what's CRISPR? What is gene editing versus embryo selection? I guess it's worth briefly mentioning that. So CRISPR, of course, comes from this bacterial immune system that evolved to fight off parasites, specifically viruses. And um, so what bacteria do when phage viruses try to invade them is they actually can they have a sophisticated way of genetically sequencing them and figuring out, is this like a friend or a foe? And if it's a foe, I'm going to like disable some of the genes or rearrange them or whatever. Sometimes they even incorporate some of the genes from viruses that invade them. And so CRISPR has been around for, well, billions of years. It, it evolved in order for, for bacteria to fight off viruses. And we've only discovered what it does for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier in France, they won the Nobel Prize for co-discovering what it does and how we could use it to intentionally manipulate plants, you know, cells. It could be humans too. Okay, so um, that's, that's already been around long before we discovered it. And what Gary Eppie was worried about, as far as I could tell, is AI-guided, that is, an artificial general intelligence, AGI-guided use of CRISPR. And I mean, my general response to that is that really has nothing to do with whether we use CRISPR or not, or whether it's being used in labs. If an AGI is smart enough, and I guess you might say malevolent enough, to want to use us for its own ends and radically rewrite our genetic code, it could already do that. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on us doing it. It would figure out, it would be smart enough to figure out what CRISPR is. It turns out, you know, bacteria are like the most common cell, the most common life form in, in, on the entire planet. There are trillions and trillions of them all around us. And AGI would simply figure out how to use CRISPR and then use it against us. So our use of CRISPR is, is basically irrelevant for it. Um, what can we use it for? Well, I think it's not ready to go yet, but as you know, it was used by a kind of rogue Chinese scientist a few years ago to edit a single gene in a couple of embryos. And right now, even editing a single gene, I think, is, is really unsafe. Why? Because CRISPR, even though we kind of understand how it works and we can use it in labs, it does result in frequent downstream mutations um, unanticipated changes in the genome. So really, most people aren't talking about using CRISPR on humans right now. Um, but I will say what they are talking about, and I've been talking about since, since the book and other things that I've written, is the use of embryo selection for complex traits. So just to quickly review how that works, when women go through IVF, they have to generate a bunch of eggs. Some of them aren't going to be viable. You combine them with sperm. You let them grow and then you can genetically sequence them so that you can detect whether or not they're going to have Tay-Sachs or Down syndrome. Do they have an extra chromosome or not enough chromosomes? And people have been using that for, for decades, right, to screen out embryos. And then the only question is, do you choose at random or do you choose one that's less likely to have one of those devastating kind of monogenic conditions? The big difference now, and it's really only been possible for five or 10 years, because of genome-wide association studies, is that most of the traits we care about are highly polygenic. So things like uh, intelligence, height, aesthetic features, our immune system, how that functions, they usually involve thousands of tiny genetic variants, each of which adds up to a probability that you'll have this or that trait. And so 
not only is it much more complicated than most people would have thought when they're you know thinking about science fiction scenarios 30 years ago 50 years ago but it's it's true that we couldn't even do anything until just a few years ago it wasn't possible to predict these really complex traits by scanning an embryo until very very recently so Anyway, that's the difference between CRISPR and gene editing on the one hand, and then embryo selection on the other. People use IVF. When they use IVF, there's always extra embryos. And the only question is, like, which one do you choose to implant? And what, what embryo selection using pre-implantation genetic testing does is it enables you to select in favor of polygenic traits that you want, a low disease burden, possibly... Uh, greater height for for a boy because people care more about it for boys than girls, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the the interesting bit here is that you know, IVF is now the uh, the exception. Essentially, the um, the changes and the possibilities you're describing would mean that something like IVF would be the rule, or the incentives would point toward people reproducing that way just because they have this kind of extra set of options that, uh, you know, the old, uh, the old system doesn't really offer. Um, and I think, isn't it the case that now IVF, um, essentially people who tend to have IVF, you know, are in, infertile and IVF tends to uh, pass along quite a relatively high mutational load. So children born, even with whatever limited embryo selection they have now, tend to you know, have have issues, which I don't know exactly if they're related to the process of IVF or the fact that the parents were infertile in the first place, and it's essentially kind of a a brute force, uh, you know, shaken alive type of situation uh, from uh, from a situation that you know wouldn't wouldn't have worked naturally. So, I mean, I feel like you know there there are multiple kind of failure points here. Obviously, this is kind of vague, but this this is kind of just at this point my my. Um, I don't know, misgivings about this. I don't know if it's, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of my misgivings about this are definitely like gut reactions to the idea that, okay, the best way to have children is completely, you know, it w- involves like a third party with, you know, nitro gloves and, and <laughs> a lot of expensive computers. So I don't know, maybe that's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a few things there. Um, let me address them. So first of all, yeah, IVF doesn't introduce any any mutations or as far as we can tell, really no risks at all. Um, but you are right that people who use IVF tend to be infertile or older. So, um, you know, less capable of having children. And so what ends up happening is, yeah, their children are more likely to have higher mutation load simply because they're older. There's a problem with how we reproduce in general. It's not a problem with IVF, but rather the norms. And, and you and I are probably in agreement here. You know, one of the problems in the West is as you know, I mean, we emphasize like women go off and work in big cities and, you know, live with cats and be super unhappy and, you know, have your, have your supposed fun on Tinder. And when you're 35 or 36, start thinking about having kids. And that's a really unhealthy way to live. Now there is, there's really two ways we could go with that. And I think we're going to go both ways. Some people are going to go more trad, um, not necessarily reject technology, but just because it's healthy maybe to go a little more trad have kids a little earlier, you know, um, marry a little earlier, that's going to be healthier. The other is a technological fix. And it's not a perfect fix because it doesn't fix the underlying social worry that leads to this problem of delayed reproduction. And that is freezing eggs when you're, you know, 17, 18. I actually think a lot of people will be doing that. I don't oppose that. I actually think it's a decent idea, but 
you know, to the extent that differentiating, you know, reproduction from, you know, relationships and broader things like connecting with your, with your community, getting married, all these things that I think, and I know you agree are healthy, that may have some downsides. So there are up and downsides to um, the two different solutions. But I think basically this problem of mutation load, it's not going to go away unless we essentially roll back civilization and start, you know, having children when we're 16 again. Um, so we're going to go in two different directions. I think some people will resist modernity and, and go back and have kids earlier and others are going to freeze their eggs earlier and others might, might do more of the same. And by the time CRISPR is ready to use, I assume it eventually will be edit out some of the mutations that accumulate when people wait until they're older. Um, but let me say something about your first comment. Yeah, I mean, a lot more people are using IVF in Denmark. Now, 10% of all births are a result of IVF. And in China, Steve Xu just announced on his podcast this week, it's a really good listen. I think your, your listeners would enjoy it. It's called Manifold. He announced that um, China now has a policy of subsidizing universal IVF for its population. And one of the anticipated, unanticipated consequences of this is that there's going to be a lot more intentional embryo selection in China, which I think is going to create some pressure on non-Chinese to take the technology pretty seriously. But that's kind of a secondary point. Yeah, I think the 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 main thing that um, is is making me, you know, not take a, a very like staunch Luddite position against these technologies is that they're already here. They're happening. Um, you know, how we deal with them is essentially the question. Um, you know, what incentives they'll they'll uh, bring bring forth. I mean, this is happening on a small scale now, but I think people are starting to, to think about these things. They're starting to align with them um, kind of in, in, at an elite level at people who you know, might be able to afford them once they come out. So um, yep. yeah, this is, this is already there. And the fact that, you know, like you said, we really are facing um, almost like a, a catastrophic demographic and fertility crisis among the most you know, prolific, smart, interesting people we have in the world for whatever cultural, material, you know, capitalism. There's all sorts of reasons, ideological reasons, um, why people are, have stopped having children. But it's it's a it's a huge problem, and you know, I think we're at the point where we're you know we're throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. And if this is one of the things that sticks, I mean, I don't know. It's uh, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm pretty much a, a layperson here. I you know, I have my gut reactions. <laughs> Doesn't seem necessarily like something attractive to me, but I'm also lucky that you know I am. You know, I I have children relatively easily. No interventions needed. You know, I I have a completely different um, opinion if that that were in the case. So, yeah, I you know to to add to that, I mean, you and I are in agreement, and I think probably all of your listeners are pronatalists. Um, we think there's something seriously wrong with the West. That you know, liberal individualism is a big part of it big part of the problem that is we're all trying to figure out what comes next and what what might be a healthier way of organizing society um and and part of it also is not just pronatalism a goal a goal we share but you know reintroducing either sexual selection which you and Gary Eppie talked about or some proxy for that because we know I mean you and I were talking before about Jeffrey Miller a mutual friend and he and Diana you know they that's what they studied. That's what they did their PhDs in, sexual selection. And now 
of course, in, in the modern academy, you can't even talk about male-female differences, let alone this force, which has driven evolution, right? It, it, you know, Jeffrey's famous for saying that a big part of human intelligence was probably sexually selected, not just naturally selected. It's kind of an interesting theory. Either way, we know like male virtues are selected when women choose to reproduce with them, right? Um, and this is an extremely powerful force. One of the problems with modernity, and this is not a problem with reproductive technology, but with modernity, and, and Galton and Darwin recognized this you know, 150 years ago, is that when you have certain kinds of social safety nets, what ends up happening is you outsource the father to the government, and women now choose traits that probably are not great from a social standpoint, right? Like, who's the handsome dude? No, nothing wrong with being like, I don't know, a mus muscly, handsome dude, but, you know, as opposed to who is morally virtuous, who is right, who's creative and interesting, who's good at forming social coalitions and getting groups to like act collectively and successfully. And, you know, in the right kind of society, a healthy society, women find that guy attractive, right? That's the one I want to have kids with, not like whatever, Jim bro or guy who, you know, rapper or something like that. You think of the Kardashians, holy shit, what a dysgenic family this is, right? They identify the least intelligent people in the society and have tons of children with them. Like this is a problem with our political systems, not with reproductive technology. And one of the, again, strange but interesting things about reproductive technology is, although it has its downsides and we'll talk about it, one of the upsides is when you differentiate, you know, in modern liberal societies, sex from reproduction, what you allow women to do is in some cases select more directly what kind of kids they want. So for example, when a woman goes to a fertility clinic for like, let's say a sperm bank, we have really good data of what she selects. She doesn't select the sperm of an aggressive asshole who she might date and find attractive. She looks for intelligence, creativity, kindness, and health. And, you know, in a, in a healthy society, um, basically we have sets of social norms such that women naturally find guys like that attractive. In a sick society, like the one we live in now, that's not necessarily what women are choosing. And so I didn't set up the current social norms. I, you know, if, if I could, I would make them different, but I can't. And none of us have the power to control the kind of trajectory of civilization. So the real question is... Um, not are in the abstract reproductive technologies good or bad, but how can we harness them along with changing to some extent the social norms such that the collective upshot is like good for all of us? Um, and I'll let you think about that. Let me add one quick point. Sorry to talk so long, but you know, this was what Plato and Aristotle saw as the function of all political societies. They literally saw a political society as a kind of biomass. And the set of institutions, the set of norms, how much they valued music and learning and things like this were really a function of the biological composition of the people. And so more than anything else, they had this vision that we need to simultaneously select good institutions, have a good education system that focuses on the martial and the intellectual virtues, and have a kind of breeding program. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, we need to breed the best citizens. And my view is, yeah, they were right. All three of those are super important. Yeah, 
I mean, obviously, this is very, very uh, spicy <laughs> to be <laughs> quoting Plato and Aristotle, anything uh-huh. that's necessarily the Republic. But uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. I've actually written uh, recently an essay about some, something to, to this effect um, about, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about what masculinity is and how men and women should relate to each other. And it just feels to me that, you know, a lot of the uh, kind of depolarization of the sexes, because, you know, obviously men have been feminized, but women have kind of masculinized, which kind of kind of all, you know, shifted towards the middle ground of the um, productive, uh, you know, liberal actor, you know, trying to maximize uh, self-satisfaction and uh, develop their authentic self and all this type of stuff. Um, and that essentially for, for a lot of men has meant um, losing a lot of the things that, that used to be, you know, considered masculine. Um, and I feel like we've moved into this this world where it's quite it's very larpy. I mean, I've I've gone onto you know you know all sorts of sites that you know, pretend pretend to <clears throat> educate people on masculinity. And it's essentially a checklist. You know, you should be wearing a leather jacket. You should be riding a motorcycle. Is this good or bad and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, you know, you need to check off these masculinity points. And I think this is the result of of people essentially being robbed of their functions of their. Um, of, of the need to exert competence in the world. Like, for example, you know, even the most, the most competent people in the world who make, let's say, let's say, a lot of money from their competence are nerds and, and bean counters and people who, you know, these, these are not, you know, great leaders of men. I mean, they, they're very highly specialized in a sub-discipline and something, and they found a quirk in, in an otherwise extremely well-arbitraged system where, you know, they could make, you know, a ton of money in a short amount of time. And, you know, there's just little things like that. But the fact that the world is extremely complex, and in my piece I also mentioned, you know, like in the home, like the only activities left in the home are traditionally female activities, you know, caring activities, the day-to-day laundry, you know, wash the counters, change the baby, all this type of stuff. Back in the day where there were actually male-coded activities tied to the home and hearth, like chopping wood. I mean, the wood comes pre-chopped now. Um, you know, <laughs> protecting the home from predators. You know, the state does that. And I don't know, high yeah, security like systems. Security cameras, exactly. Yeah, we've outsourced all that. We have gardeners instead of mowing your own lawn. Yeah, all those male and activities. Men have, have done this. You know, they've, yeah. you know, they've, contri- they've built the modern world with comforts and, yeah. uh, you know, extreme <laughs> abundance in so many ways. And they've literally unemployed themselves to the point where a lot of their tendencies and, and proclivities are useless. And also women can't see that. And I think that's also led to the, to the ratcheting up of all these strange proxies, the obsession with true crime, you know, the women are just kind of waiting for some, some super stimulus of, of masculinity mm. because everyone's kind of this gray goo. And I think women are as well. I mean, you know, like you mentioned the Kardashians, Kardashians also like a walking super stimulus. I mean, they've essentially, you know, they're dysgenic in their mate choice, but they're, they're trying to present themselves as, uh, you know, as, as some self-made beauty icons and they've, they've made themselves into something else. So, um, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a strange place. And I really think it does require a lot of negotiation on our part with each other. And sometimes with technology, because the technology is already here. Uh, people are employing in strange ways and um, we kind of have to decide how we want to deal with it and how much of it we want where. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, I agree with all that, but I think another place in which this has occurred that's especially dangerous is our truth-making institutions 
especially my former home, the university, but also journalism. So these fields are more and more dominated by women. And, you know, I suppose this is controversial in the general public to say, but not on your show. Um, you know, when you have females dominating an occupation, the, the mission changes, the norms change. And we have poll data on this. I mean, Eric Kaufman and many others have done surveys showing that women support all kinds of restrictions on speech in, in academia at much higher rates than men. Unless we can recognize that there are these male-female differences um, and that these have really large macro effects um, on different kinds of occupations and our, on, on, again, our norms, we're kind of, we're kind of in a bad place. So it's weird, but, um, you know, whether or not we need to bring back the patriarchy is, is, you know, that's a separate question, but just, just being able to openly recognize that sex differences are real and they have predictable consequences when men and women dominate different occupations is, I think one of the most important things we can do. And, and that's, of course, why, why the far left wants to break these things down, right? I mean, this is the ultimate way to control a civilization is to deny the most important differences there are. Um, yeah, including sex differences. Yeah, I mean, we're at the point where I think a lot more people, a lot more people in kind of a, you know, elite circles are realizing that, you know, this is, this is absolute truth. You know, we've been... We've been brainwashed with a lot of blank slateism through pretty much every channel for a long time and people have, have, have bought it, but now it's changing. I don't know exactly what the consequences will be. I think bringing back patriarchy in a, in a strict way is going to be difficult just because, um, you know, just because of the you know, material and technological surroundings. I mean, men aren't what they used to be. Women aren't what they used to be. The, the substrate that we live on, um, you know, patriarchy was uh, social technology that was that worked very well for the conditions, the very harsh conditions in which it emerged. And I think we might we might be heading there, but maybe it'll take you know two hundred to a thousand years up until we get to the point where it's really so so bad <laughs> that we have to yeah. invent uh, or, or rediscover new social technologies. But at the moment, it just feels like we're in kind of a, a stalemate. Um, and you know, this this whole kind of neo trad thing is just, you know, people who have gone through the mental grinder of, of modernity and then kind of come out on the other side and people who probably like the aesthetic and you know, yeah. just want to have yeah. a wheat field virgin. But it's, it's, even this is kind of very much at the, at the ground level. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that you said there, yeah, I, I don't think patriarchy is even desirable to, to bring back. I mean, for, for lots of obvious reasons, as you put it, it's, it's a social technology for a particularly particular kind of environment, um, but yeah, m recognizing male female differences and so on is, is is quite different. I do want to say something about um, one of the social implications of the kind of technology that we're talking about, though. So, as mentioned at the beginning, embryo selection for complex traits is here, and it's going to be done very very quickly for things like intelligence, um, height. Lots of, other, lots of other mental traits, disease traits is like schizophrenia, um, ADHD, the kinds of things that, that people want to avoid. And I think one of the things that is going to happen as a consequence of this soon is that it's going to put a price more and more on the false beliefs that elites hold and probably implicitly know are false, right? Elites, of course, you know, like say again in universities, journalists and so on. 
you know, who, who do they marry? They tend to marry other people in their class. They're the ultimate assortative maters, right? They care about intelligence, social status, all these things. And then publicly, of course, denounce those things. As, as many of our friends have said, you know, hereditarians between the sheets, blank slatus in the streets. And I think that what's interesting about, say, embryo selection for intelligence, which will be coming soon, is, is the following. They're going to have this incredible cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, they're supposed to believe IQ is fake. It's certainly not genetically influenced. There's probably no individual differences, right? All disparities are a result of oppression and lack of access to education and no group differences. But here is the, the, the interesting thing. First, these are the people who are, who are having children the latest, right? The, the educated class, the laptop class. They're the ones that are going to be most worried about autism, about Down syndrome, and about having a low IQ child. And so I think they're going to be simultaneously publicly denouncing the companies that offer this, privately using them. And it's going to create, again, this kind of cognitive dissonance in the, in the culture writ large, whereby there's an increasing price to publicly announcing your fealty to the blank slate ideology. So, um, and, and that includes the group differences thing, which I won't get into, but um, these polygenic risk scores, which are the gauge that you use to judge the traits that a particular embryo is likely to have, actually only work well on the populations they're trained on. So when you do a genome-wide association study in England, and you try to extrapolate the results and test Africans, for example, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? The genetic differences are so profound that it doesn't work. <laughs> and the laptop class that um, reads about this is going to be in a conundrum. They're going to think, well, this is racist, but wait a minute, race is a social construct, but wait a minute, um, I don't like inequalities, but how could inequalities arise if race is a social construct? there's going to be this set of mutually contradictory ideas that, that that's brought to the fore. And I think one of the most interesting things about these reproductive technologies is not just how they're going to be used, but how they might put pressure on this over, overriding Western ideology of the blank slate, right? This, this focus, this obsession with promoting equity in every institution. Um, once you realize that Equity cannot be achieved ever because genetic differences are so profound between individuals and groups. Um, that is going to, I think, at least put some pressure on this ideology to, to implode. But who knows? Um, I had this conversation with Richard Hanania, and he thinks, oh, no, like a lot of people are capable of such enormous cognitive dissonance that, yeah, what they'll do is privately use these services and publicly denounce them. And that's that. It's hard to know. Yeah, I think that's that's probable for a while. Um, I I also think that there's going to be you know for people who actually realize what the implications of this are, and you know the the people in the laptop class are tend to be the smarter ones. Um, there will be quite a lot of pushback to the release of these technologies. I mean, this is going to be quite a, a Nazi type scandal, and it's going to blow up quite violently. Um, so I, um, yeah, I, I think they're going to try very hard to suppress um, the, you know, the, the release of technology and the, and the, the fact that it's, it should be available to anyone because it's pretty much 
it's eugenics, <laughs> you know, and then nothing or, worse yeah. than eugenics. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's that's probably going to be the first step. And then obviously a lot of people will be, you know, traveling to maybe more distant locations where people don't know them to actually get this done. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. But there are, um, you know, this is one of the implications, a positive one in my, in my view, but <clears throat> uh, other implications that you mentioned in, in your articles um, are, you know, sex ratio issues um, that we essentially, we have already had these issues in, in China where you can, you know, have sex selective abortions you know, all around the world. Um, people tend to prefer, culturally prefer one sex over the other. And that leads to like large scale effects on the, the wider population and what, what happens socially when, you know, things are a little bit off kilter. If you leave nature alone, it tends to kind of even out. Once you, you, you know, start poking around there, it, it, uh, it leads to issues. Um, and I mean, you know, this is one, one thing, but it also, you know, the, the people who tend to have a bit more kind of, or a bit more permeable to this technology tend to be less religious. They tend to, you know, at, at this point, so you, you're going to have cleavages in the, in the, in the population in terms of kind of more intelligence-based casts and, and essentially, I don't know, kind of like the, the movie Gattaca, but I guess not as intense at the beginning, but more intense once you, once you go, once you go further. Um, I mean, this could have just absolutely immense social implications. I know you thought about this, but maybe you can, you can riff on this a little bit because yeah, I don't know. It just feels like uh, very much, uh, you know, a first domino looks friendly, but then it could it can go very much haywire. Yeah, exactly. But it's like pretty much, <coughs> excuse me, all technology. I mean, it's, you know, whether we're talking about nuclear power, which, you know, once you have the technology, you can also use it for nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons can be used to deter really bad people or to attack really good people. And, you know, the same thing goes for almost anything that we can think about, right? Our ability to ma manipulate viruses has led to vaccines. And, okay, forget the COVID vaccine, but like real vaccines like, you know, polio and you know, these extremely deadly diseases that have just devastated our populations, you know, is it on that good that we discovered how antibiotics work or, you know, how to manipulate viruses so that we could inoculate them in certain ways or inoculate ourselves against certain manifestations of them? So far, so good, right? On net, it's been like really good. But, but it also means you can have the technology to manipulate viruses and probably the origin of COVID, right? Um, you know, in a lab to try to make them deadlier, you know, whether or not you're trying to do that so you can create a vaccine or just to wipe out a population. All these technologies are, are really enablers as far as I see. And so I think, yeah, as you said, what's going to happen is some nations are going to outlaw this, especially for mental traits. Others are going to subsidize it. Let's call that other China, probably Singapore. But I think what's really going to happen is the dynamics over like, let's say a 20 or 30 year period is countries like Germany, which outlaws this technology right now. Yeah, they're going to condemn it at first. They're going to call themselves Nazis if they use it, you know, and, and, you know, Germans are pretty rich people. They're going to go to Singapore to use it, the ones who really want to. And eventually there's going to be a realization that this is the kind of thing you can't suppress, but you might regulate it in good ways. And I think it should be regulated, right? probably not by self-described bioethicists. They tend to be some of the worst people in the world at thinking through these implications, right? They'll try to promote equity or whatever they're, whatever they're up to. Um, but yeah, for things like sex ratios, although I think they're 
decent arguments that it's a self-equilibrating process. If the ratios came too, too far apart, there would be incentives to have a member of the opposite sex, right? If there are too many men, you want to have a woman. But in the interim, when those ratios are off, you can have pretty bad consequences. So I could see a case in which um, there might be a law that says you can only select sex in order to balance your own family. Like you have two boys and now you want a girl. Okay, that's fine. But if you just want one kid and everyone just wants one or three and they just want three girls, yeah, I mean, there could be some pretty bad social consequences. It seems like that's a sensible regulation. You can't um, select sex for under certain conditions. Is it enforceable? I don't know. So actually, like all laws, we should probably do the game theory on like what happens after we pass the law. Can we actually like hide the genetic information on sex, sex uh, data? Like I doubt it, actually. Like you can access information on the embryo's risk of getting Alzheimer's, a uh, certain kind of diabetes uh, is likely to have this or that IQ, but you can't see its sex. I don't actually know how we can hide that information. I doubt we could. But if we could in principle, yeah, why not? Like that's actually pretty sensible. I think, you know, the the standards for, for medical testing, you know, have all sorts of strictures and things like that. And, you know, if if that's that's one that will have to be set in place. I mean, you know, you 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 weren't able to see, you know, XY chromosome type of stuff until, you know, maybe five or ten years ago here. I don't know. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's uh there's much more advanced stuff in, in the US, but um it's you know, it's a tick box thing. You know, if you want to have genetic testing here as well, you know, you just say you don't want to know. And then maybe the government says you don't want to know. And I mean, you would probably bribe someone at the lab to tell you if you really wanted to. And I'm sure you could in Romania if this was ever available. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are ways. But yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way of... Uh... But it's still, the point remains, I mean, you know, regulations may not work perfectly when demand is high, like, you know, regulations of drugs or prostitution. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have them because obviously they can work to some extent. And if they work to some extent, that might be good enough, right? It doesn't have to work perfectly. Like we have laws against murder, but people still murder each other. That doesn't mean we should abolish the laws. It just means we should like figure out how much to enforce those laws. So I wouldn't argue too strongly against like, yeah, regulations on sex ratios and, and positional goods arms races where like, I don't know, there's some aesthetic enhancement where you're like, this thing is really considered beautiful. Um, and so people are going to select it more and more like height in male children. I can imagine good reasons to have regulations on that, actually. Will it work? Probably not well, but it might work well enough. So, you know, that's not an, it's not an automatic argument against a regulation to say that it doesn't work perfectly or it's really expensive to enforce. Yeah, I think, um, you know, regulation a lot of times is like stigma. You know, the people who have the money, the, the clout, the, you know, elbow pointiness to actually, um, you know, overcome regulation will probably be, be in a minority and most people will just have to abide by it. Uh, and, you know, that's essentially how elites have acted throughout the throughout history. You know, stigma, regulation, social norms were for the plebs. And then, you know, a small group of people, which is essentially what you'd want because essentially the effects that, you know, could go wrong here in a, in a massive way would be uh, at a large scale if, if everyone could do it. So, you know, this is not, not so bad. To follow up on that thought, I mean, it's kind of interesting because as you know, like, like regulations work pretty well in high trust societies. Like when the Swedish government tells its citizens to do something, they mostly do it. And it's not because they're slaves and stupid. It's because like, 
historically, maybe not right now, but you know, historically, their leaders were telling them the truth more often than the leaders of like Paraguay or Sudan or something like this, right? So like when you have a high trust, low corruption society, actually regulations tend to work pretty well. And so maybe this is an argument, not so much against certain kinds of regulations, but in favor of certain kinds of countries, including smaller, more nationalistic political societies. When you have that, you have the conditions for trust to emerge and for regulations to be sensible. So you could kind of turn this on its head, turn the libertarian position on its head and say like, yeah, people are going to select sex anyway. So like, fuck it, let's let them do it. Well, wait a minute, maybe the ratios do matter or some other trait that we want to talk about matters. And that's an argument against mass modern liberal societies and in favor of smaller, uh, more homogenous traditional societies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just the, the whole high trust, low trust thing, I think is, is fascinating. I think it's, it's so important because, you know, I, I come from a, a low trust society, which was traditional and homogenous up to, up to a sure. certain point yeah. recently. No, no, just, just saying it's, um, yeah. you know, it, it might just be the type of technology you, you can you know release in the wild in Sweden and Singapore. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, these are not necessarily uh, homogenous, but they're high trust yeah. for now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm also, I've been thinking about this, uh, you know, what, what makes a, a high trust? Because for example, Romania became more high trust with Western supervision. You know, I'm not necessarily a, a pro-Europe type of person, um, but the fact that you had these kind of Eurocrat supervisors and there's a lot of European money that they wanted, you know, very specific documents, you know, to trace and statements and everything. Um, and Romania has access to quite a lot of European money in, in different ways, um, has really reduced the amount of corruption that we had internally, which I think, you know, I think is just fascinating exactly, you know, how, how would it work? Because for, for a country like England, yeah, this, <laughs> this whole stuff doesn't work. You know, it's, it's definitely been a, a reduction in trust in the last whatever amount of years, uh, especially with the EU, didn't help them. But for us, it really did help. So, you know, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like a like a Heinel line type uh, problem. <laughs> I don't, but, look, uh, that's probably part of it, but I don't think the genetic distance between Western and Eastern Europeans is large enough for that to explain the phenomena we see. Like Western countries are more high trust, Eastern more low trust. I mean, communism explains a lot more than genetics in that case. In the same way that you know, it's political ideology, not genetics, that explains why North Korea is so different than South Korea you know, talk about like the ultimate example. I mean, basically Poles, you know, Polish people and Germans are genetically almost identical, despite what the Nazis said, which was absurd that this was like some slave class, you know, genetically they're indistinguishable, practically anyway. Um, so it's really probably communism, the legacy of communism, I'm guessing, I mean, I'm not an expert on Eastern Europe, but more than, um, I don't know, some magical touch that you know, on one side of the Hajnal line, you know, we have it and we can export it a bit versus on the other, like you're incapable of it. I kind of think that's, you know, bullshit. To yeah. 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 I mean, this is, you know, this is one, one factor that might be it. I think there's also quite a lot of historical issues here. I mean, yeah. you have just like huge, essentially plate tectonics of empires. And this is literally where I live now yeah. is, is where they used to, you know, rub and, uh, you know, this has just been like the killing fields of Europe, you know, right. You know, they killed us, they killed each other. It's always, this is where it happens. So yes. Uh, yes. yeah, it's not, you know, even if you wanted to grow something here as like a, you know, a, 
indigenous culture that had its own thing. You could do it for like 50 years until someone, some other horde would just like wipe you off the map. So yeah, it's, you know, it's also location, location, location and everything. And, you know, yeah. geographic <laughs> one is, is definitely one as well. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of a, a more technical question about the uh, the embryo selection. Because I mean, in IVF, you have a very limited number of, of embryos. I mean, and it can't be too many because, you know, you do um, stimulate the production of, uh, of ova, but, you know, that's limited in, in, in some way. So you probably have, I don't know, 10 maybe embryos that come out of this IVF cycle. Um, how much variability do you find within these embryos? And um, I mean, you can, I guess, it's a fairly limited set that you're choosing from. So how much actual control or, or you know, how much could you get out of this procedure? Yep. It's a great question. I mean, you get enough genetic variation with 10 embryos to be able to significantly reduce things like diabetes, again, Alzheimer's. Um, you can get about a 10-point spread in IQ, maybe 11 points um, between the highest and lowest scoring embryo. And one thing that's important if you're talking about IQ as opposed to these other traits um, is that all you can do is rank order them. You can't be like this embryo. Embryo three has an IQ of 112. Like that's not how IQ works. I mean, the environment does matter. Like if the mom is drinking a bunch of alcohol when she's pregnant and then, you know, um, smokes crack or whatever, like it doesn't matter what your, your prediction is for the embryo. It's not going to have that number. That's not how IQ works. But what you can do is say, given the genetic data that we have and these genome-wide association studies, we can say that on average between the lowest scoring and the highest scoring embryo, you're going to get, you know, approximately, you know, 10, 11, 12 points. That's going to go up a little bit with time, but you hit a wall eventually if you've only got, say, 10 embryos and, and the wall is, is hit faster if you only have three or four embryos. Um, one of the big things that that's coming though. I mean, that's already a pretty big spread. And I, I know people who, well, are already doing this or are capable of doing this now. So there are people doing embryo selection for this kind of thing. But um, one thing that's going to really change the game in the next, let's say, five years, 10 years at the most, this is really radical. And those on the right who are already afraid of this are really not going to like this, but it's true. You're going to be able to take an adult cell, like a hair or skin cell, turn it into a pluripotent stem cell, which is basically the kind of cells that embryos already are, right? They can differentiate into bone, into blood, into skin. A pluripotent stem cell can become any other kind of cell. But what that means is you can turn that into an egg cell. So we will be able to take a skin cell and turn it into an egg cell. Now, like sperm or a dime a dozen, right? We, we produce billions every day. So you're never going to have to worry about variability there. We've got lots of genetic variation. <laughs> but right now we're limited by the number of eggs you can produce. Well, if we can reverse engineer that process, and it will be done, there's no doubt, it's already being done for other animals, then you can imagine a case where you have tremendous genetic variability so that you have you know, 500 embryos to select from. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in the next five years. The, the possibility of it will happen. The technology will be there, but it's going to be expensive and you know, probably the FDA would make it illegal or whatever. But in 10 to 20 years, I think that's actually going to be the norm um, because people want to select from, you know, if you, if you have two low IQ people, given enough embryos, you're going to have a, a high IQ embryo. Um, if you have two people, let's say both are Ashkenazi Jewish, 
Well, Ashkenazis are susceptible to lots of different genetic diseases because of the bottleneck. They both, they both have extremely high intelligence for genetic reasons, likely, but also are susceptible to lots of heritable diseases because their population shrunk so much during the Middle Ages and then eventually rebounded. Whenever you have those genetic bottlenecks, you have susceptibility to disease. So I think what's going to happen then is, um, again, because of this like ability to induce pluripotency in stem cells, you're going to get people selecting among much more uh, variability in embryos, and that's going to allow for, for yeah, bigger results. So I know that's going to make some, some listeners even less happy, but like, I think this is basically going to happen. So, yeah. I mean, the, just the theological implications of yep. <laughs> any part of this are just absolutely, I mean, even, yeah. you know, embryo selection now, I think, you know, I've had um, Katie Faust on the show recently and she's essentially kind of a, a children's rights supporter or, or activist or kind of reframing children's rights as, you know, the rights to a mother and a father. And she's also uh, against IVF and against, you know, just the idea of producing embryos for not, you know, not to, obviously she has kind of a religious perspective here as well. Yep. Um, one that, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm interested in, I think is, is, is worthy as a, as, as something to discuss, but you know, the, the fact that this stuff is already here, it's already being, you know, I mean, you know, this this particular, you know, the somatic cell to, to stem cell type thing is not, you know, commercially available, but it's on the table, which is, um, yeah, quite frightening, to be honest. <laughs> you know, of, of all the, of all the you know, um, morally murky things that we've discussed today, this one's kind of given me the heebie-jeebies the yeah. most, to be honest. It's quite, well, it's quite strong, strong medicine. <laughs> Let me address this. So like, I actually think there's not a lot you can say to religious objections. And even though I'm not religious, I'm very friendly to religion, um, especially in my adulthood. I wasn't as a child, you know, as a sort of Nietzschean teenager, like these people are just fools and, you know, we should all be sort of uber mention or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, for lots of reasons, I'm sure you're familiar with, I'm quite friendly to religion and specifically some more than others, you know, kind of Mormonism, that sort of thing. Not because I think it's true, but because I think civilization needs myths and wokeism is a dangerous, evil, antinatal myth, whereas Mormonism is a socially beneficial um, sort of, yeah, I mean, good myth, I guess. And to the extent that people need these, I think these things are good. I'm not trying to dismiss religion as a mere myth. That's, that's not my point. I'm very friendly to to religion and and um, let me say that, but I don't think there's much you can say to religious people on this sort of thing. Um, with IVF, with some religions, maybe Judaism, they're a little friendlier to it because you know God wants you to reproduce, and there's no obvious strictures against using kind of IVF and this sort of technology. Creating, you know, creating eggs from skin cells, like. I don't know that, again, Judaism or Christianity, I mean, nobody thought about this a thousand years ago, so I don't think it's forbidden, but I could see why people would be uncomfortable with using the body as a kind of mere means to you know, maximize good consequences for babies. But I will say to the secular right, um, I think the worries are almost entirely misplaced. I mean, you've had on people like Morgoth and many others who, who also worry about this technology. And I'll say this, I mean, 
there's a kind of caricature. I don't want to caricature them, but like there's a caricature of what's going on now where it's like Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, you know, rubbing their hands and, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to like upload our minds to the cloud and it's not even a fun cloud. It's like some shitty Microsoft cloud. And, you know, our bodies are going to be force fed like a diet of bugs and soy milk in a pot or whatever. I mean, look, I mean, rhetorically, these kinds of things are are funny. They're, you know, a way to get people mobilized against, you know, some of these fake prophets like Bill Gates and, and Klaus Schwab. But the reality is, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that are going to happen over the next few decades is this incremental ability to subtly control the way we reproduce a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think it's going to be a lot like things like the invention of the lightning rod, where there were religious crusades in the United States when the lightning rod was invented. Why? Because like, you know, lightning is God's punishment for, for evil, right? For wrongdoing or vaccines. There were, there, there was a huge movement against vaccines. Again, not COVID, right? That's a pretty marginally effective vaccine, but like, you know, other kinds of interventions like vaccines and, you know, treatments, various kinds of surgeries. And now it's considered completely normal. And I think the more likely scenario, like it or not, is these things become normalized. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a choice to be made, which is you can either not use them and fall behind in a kind of arms race or use them and hopefully guide the use through sensible regulations. Um, so I think people on the right need to take this a little more seriously, especially the secular right. It doesn't automatically lead to Brave New World and some dystopia. In fact, my favorite Huxley is Julian Huxley, not Aldous. And Julian Huxley openly embraced eugenics his entire life. And he called it eugenics, but it was voluntary eugenics. Um, like Francis Galton, who explicitly argued against coercive eugenics his entire life. He actually said that the moment the state gets involved in this and tries to force us into it is the moment we discredit the science and ruin our society. And like Galton, like Darwin, like Julian Huxley, but unlike Aldous Huxley, I think that's right, which is, you know, like other technologies, we can embrace it and regulate it in a sensible way and change our societies so that our societies are more healthy rather than take the sick societies we actually live in and say, what would happen under the worst possible scenario if we introduce this technology? And it's like, yeah, I don't like that scenario either, but that's not guaranteed to result from this. Um, so yeah, I think we should like take a step back and think a little bit more sensibly about how these kinds of innovations will affect our incentives to meet and mate in certain ways and how our goals of doing that should affect how we regulate these, these technologies. Yeah. I think the, you know, the, the, the question of regulation is, is as complex as the question of it, um, of it spreading. I mean, you know, if you have different regional regulations, you already kind of have a push to deregulate because I mean, the, the, the lowest common denominator essentially wins, you know, people have, as, as as of now, freedom of movement, and they'll they'll find a way to get to yeah. the place where it's uh, where it's as as least regulated as as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is kind of the direction I've been moving in, just kind of with my discovery of the world <laughs> in the last few years. Is that um, there are forces at work now, just given the 
material, economic, technological, informational realities of the world that, um, you know, you could, you could look at from different perspectives, obviously what I try to do on the show, but they're very hard to influence. You know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, there, there are a lot of armchair, um, you know, people, you know, legal scholars who tell you what to outlaw and how to do it, but how, how that actually works in reality is that it doesn't, it really doesn't. And you can, yeah, I mean, you can obviously, you know, regulation does, you know, like we discussed before, it, it does not do nothing, but on a global scale in terms of <clears throat> the evolution of this stuff and, and how much of it we do is um, it's not really that relevant, you know, like the, the level that the technology will reach, I think is not going to be influenced by regulation, how it's used by the common individual might be. Right. In places where people respect the law, <laughs> but um, in general, at a global scale, I don't think that's the, and and that is to be honest it, with this technology and, and many others. You know, given the interconnectedness of everything, and given the fact that we, you know, I discussed this with Robin Hansen earlier this week, the fact that we know we now de facto have a world government. You know, we don't necessarily have every government in the world coordinating explicitly, but we have kind of a high status hive mind where people align. You know, like with the COVID response. You know, alignment was reached in two weeks. You know, this was this wasn't like Boris Johnson's idea. He was pulled into alignment with the global. You know, people people identified with Klaus Schwab and Davos and stuff. It's it's not there. You know, these are people. You know, they, they, that's kind of a, a meetup that they people interested in this stuff have. It's like but a boomer meetup among rich people, right? These people are, if anything, behind, not not leading the charge. Yes, yeah. yes, but there is a you know call it the cathedral, call it some yeah. something. The internet facilitates this, um, you know, for people who are high status in their communities and in their political systems to look up to what, you know, global expertise, global governance should say. And, you know, there's all sorts of NGOs and things like this, but there is something like that. And the fact that there, there, you can't have local experiments anymore, you know, you can't have the whole like, oh, libertarian, we're going to do this here and then we're going to see how this works in this state. Everything is everywhere all of the time and it's happening really fast. And it is, you know, for, for you know, Nietzschean people such as yourself, it might be, be exhilarating and, and interesting and stuff. But for me, I'm just like a lady <laughs> with children, you know, living in at the edge of empires. I just don't want bad stuff to happen, man. <laughs> and it, it, looks, yeah. it looks really frightening. Like I'm, we're just like teetering on the edge of the abyss and it's like, woohoo, we're, we're, we're yeah. going in. So, yeah. But it's I funny, I mean, that. you're a thought leader, you know, you, you have you have quite a bit of influence, I think. You know, your follower count is probably known for its quality more than its quantity. I mean, there are people with bigger counts, but, you know, when you think about, you know, what you can do, you can take two perspectives, maybe. You can do this sort of Nick Land thing and just step back and be like, we have no fucking control over what's happening. It's got a life of its own, sort of techno-capitalism let's just see what happens. It's going to be thrilling. Like maybe we crash and burn. Maybe, maybe things get a lot better. Or you can kind of take the perspective of like my old one, which is like, oh, I'm a professor. I'm going to teach things and write arguments. And people might be like, cool argument, you know, and they change their mind. Usually that doesn't happen. But, but the reality is, I mean, sometimes it does. And, you know, people like you, thought leaders, do have some power to shape the narrative. And you know, you're not going to change the course of civilization alone, but yeah, people like us, I think, can marginally shift the direction it takes. And what we can't do is choose outcomes, right? We can't sort of go in 50 years, 
here's what we're going to do. We're going to enact this blueprint. No, everything's an emergent order. But I don't think we have to just do the Nick Land thing and just step back and be like, let's just let it rip and see what happens. So it's difficult because people like us want to have some control over how things turn out. We recognize we don't have much control, but we shouldn't be under the false, under the illusion that we have no control. I think we do have like a subtle effect on how things are going to turn out, especially in our own countries. What we can't do is determine like, I don't know what India is going to do or what China is going to do. Like, yeah. All we can do is figure out what's our best response to what we think their actions are going to be. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just a, an, an interesting time. And it's, I think it's qualitatively and quantitatively different to any other age in, in history. And yep. it is, it is really interesting. I mean, that's why I've got the show and talk about the things we talk about and yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of um, a way to try to orient myself in, in space because, yeah, it's uh, it's all coming at you very hard and fast. And um, but, yeah, I mean, this is this is really fascinating. And I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to you know, be standing by and, and looking at what's going on and <laughs> reporting on it in the best way I can. Um, I mean, it, it, yeah. <laughs> What am I gonna do? Um, I, I don't like I said. I don't necessarily think you know. I think uh, possible positions on this are valid from the from the range of like total ludditeism, you know, unabomber crazed insanity, which not, is not going to work. I could understand that, like you know, anarcho primitivism, you know, reaction to everything. But I think the problem for the anarcho primitivist is that you cannot build enough bombs to, to you know solve this problem. And, um, or deter you know, China be... from doing what it wants to you. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, you know, before I let you go, I have to ask you the question of the show. And this is the uh, Versa Thinker question. Do you have uh, a recommendation for my audience of uh, maybe underrated, interesting, someone who's been influential in your life? Yeah, I love the question. And because I'm a fan of the show, I came prepared. So I cheated, unlike a lot of your, your guests. Perfect, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought about this and, you know, and it's got to be underrated and subversive. And mine is George Bernard Shaw. Um, okay. He, I think, is the first person to have coined the term Superman from Ubermensch. He wrote his, what he called his Nietzsche play in 1903 called Man and Superman. And um, Shaw wrote almost 100 plays. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I think he was the greatest writer in the English language. Um, ever, um, an Irishman. And he is full of subversive and interesting ideas, many of which are obviously wrong, but all of which are really provocative. I believe he supported both Stalin and Hitler <laughs> in the early <laughs> days. I mean, it's like, like what? <laughs> Why? How? He, he was a feminist at some point, but nothing like what you would call a feminist now. Just, you know, thought that women should be allowed to own property and, you know, sort of have a bit more control of their bodies and so on. So he wrote this, this play called Mrs. Warren's Profession, which many see as one of the origins of feminism, where a prostitute is like the hero of the play. He was a socialist, but he was also a eugenicist. He was a lot of strange and interesting things, but more than anything else, witty, provocative ideas. And so I actually wanted to read, because my favorite, my favorite thing about Shaw is his collected prefaces. So to every play, he'd write a preface, like, what is this about? And why, why am I writing this? 
And the, the prefaces alone comprise two massive volumes. That's how much he wrote, just the prefaces. So here's a quote from, from Man and Superman that's, that's relevant to the discussion. He says, My nurse was fond of remarking that you cannot make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And the more I see of the efforts of our churches and universities and literary sages to raise the mass above its own level, the more convinced I am that my nurse was right. We must either breed political capacity or be ruined by democracy, which was forced on us by the failure of older alternatives. But if despotism failed only for want of a capable despot, what chance has democracy, which requires a whole population of capable voters? And then he ends, where are such voters to be found today? Being cowards, we defeat natural selection under cover of philanthropy, the, the welfare state. Being sluggards, we neglect artificial selection under cover of delicacy and morality. So as always, he hits at the left, he hits at the right. And he says at one point, a few paragraphs later, the day may come when the great nations see their censuses dwindling year after year. You know, he's, he's already seeing this antinatalism and this fall in birth rates. And he says, we need to come up with some radical solution. I don't know what it is. I think he thought it was Fabian socialism. But no matter what his solutions were, he really saw the problems. He really just ruthlessly faced them. Got a lot of things wrong, but was just incredibly interesting. So I would say, yeah, George Bernard Shaw, that's my underrated subversive thinker. That's that's excellent. Yeah, I uh, you know I, I wasn't aware of his work except for the fact you know a few writings, Fabius Socialism to put me off. I was like, yeah, no, yeah, just yeah. of history you yeah. go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that's 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 excellent. Very uh, like proto mold buggy, and I guess there are many proto mold bugs, but you know mold yeah. is the way we we digest this stuff. But yeah, yeah this is this is great. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, uh, thanks and, for having me. Really fun to be uh, here. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the, I, I want to point people to um, your book and to uh, any other places they should be checking out. I know my website has a lot of stuff I've written. Um, I self-consciously stay off of Twitter. Well, of course, I have a burner account. Obviously, I'm on Twitter. But, <laughs> you know, several of my friends, including Bo Weingard, either got fired or gotten so much trouble that it led them to eventually get fired because of things they said on Twitter. So ever since yeah. about 2018 and the woke revolution at its height, when I was still a professor, I was like, no, I got to stay off of this. So yeah, it's all on my homepage, but yeah, thanks. Perfect. I'll, I'll put all the, the links in the show notes and yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.